a seat. Uh, if this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. Uh, this is our last Sunday here at the Wallingford Boys and Girls Club. Uh, it's been quite a ride, and God has been very, 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 very gracious to us. Uh, and I'm, I'm just really thankful for y'all and for this place and for everything he's done. Uh, in classic Anchor Church fashion, I thought we would go out with a bang. I'm going to preach through all of chapter 10, uh, 39 verses, and it's going to be a party. Let's pray. Uh, King Jesus, thank you for today, Lord. I thank you that the reality is that, that we stand before you as your people, justified, right with you, loved by you, and by your sovereign hand following you, Jesus. On my own, that is not the case. On our own, that is not the case. But you have been so kind and so gracious and so loving to us. I pray, Jesus, that you would help us to make you the ultimate joy of our life and that our love for you would spill out onto this city and that we would tell people about your goodness and of your grace and that we wouldn't bring a message of a God who sort of fixes people's lives, though you do, but we'd bring the message of God who is gracious and gives broken people Sinners, life, and life in abundance. So Jesus, I just pray you'd be with us now and that we'd remember that it's not to ask the question what we do, but why we do it. And if we know why we do it, we'll do it. Uh, we love you, Jesus, and pray these things in your name, Jesus Christ, amen. So we're in Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Um, something that's really important about the way Hebrews has been structured so far and as it continues, um, this book isn't mainly a book that's trying to tell you what to do. Uh, as Americans, we love that. Just, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And in fact, every other religion in the world is really about what you do, but this isn't about, this is Christianity, so it's not about what you do, it's about the being first, not the doing. It's about who God has made you in Jesus uh, in fact, that, that is the core of Christianity. That is the starting point. In, in fact, many other world religions, uh, I know from personal experience, uh, you can go to the Shambhala Center and meditate and do all the Buddhist stuff without being a Buddhist or believing any of it because it's all outside in, not inside out. But at the core of Christianity is the reality of the gospel that we're not doing things so God will say, that's a neat guy, I should get him on my team. But that God himself entered into human history in the person of Jesus and saved us from ourselves for his glory and for our our joy. And that is the core of our message. And that is the core of reality. That God is not first and foremost interested in what you do, but that you are changed from the inside out. That it's primarily not about doing, it's about being. And at the same time, when our being is changed, well, you can't help but do. You know, when you see him for who he is, you can't help but sing. When you see how much he's loved you, you can't help but love other people. When you see how much he's forgiven, you can't help but forgive other people. If it's happening, right, if it's, if it's touching you anywhere, if the reality of the gospel is touching you anywhere inside the core of who you are, you can't help but let that on out. Um, and, and I think this is so beautiful because I think so often, not only are we inclined to say, what do I do, and then, and then, and then try and find something to do, but when we're trying to help people follow Jesus so often, we even start with what you can do. Oh, you're having trouble following Jesus. You know, you should really amp up your quiet time. You're having trouble following Jesus, read this book. You're having trouble following Jesus, do this thing. Rarely we start with, you're having trouble following Jesus, let me remind you who he is. Let me remind you how sweet he is and how wonderful he is and how beautiful he is and how glorious he is, that you would see him and you'd follow him. 
Um, we have a tendency towards fake it till you make it Christianity, right? If it's not working, just keep going and just kind of go through the motions. That's not what Jesus wants for you. That's not at the core of Christianity. The core of Christianity is Jesus, and we're going to see that today as we go through this. So I'm going to start with the why, and I'm going to start my timer, or we will not eat lunch today. What I want you to see is we're going to start with the why, and then from the why, we move into the what. We're going to start with the being and really with Jesus, and then move into the response in the second half of the the verses. So chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has been a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered ever make perfect for those who draw near. What the heck are we talking about? We're talking about the same thing we've been talking about, and then he's comparing the Old Testament external stuff to the New Testament internal stuff. The Old Testament was about displaying that they belonged to God by their external actions, but that was only a shadow of the wonderful and glorious things that God was going to do in Jesus and make it an inside-out deal, changing people from the inside out and then allowing them to respond. Uh, Now, what's important here is that we don't ditch the first 78% of the Bible because that's the Old Testament. We stay out of there because it gets weird, but it's not saying to ditch that. It's saying all this is pointing forward to what God is doing in the universe, uh, namely in the person of Jesus, so don't ditch it, but also the new thing is here. Jesus is here. The thing that was promised, life with God dwelling amongst us, is here in Jesus now, so don't forget it. We keep going. Uh, By the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So this external things, this external temple stuff, the, the external sacrifice stuff that's in the Old Testament. Otherwise would not have ceased to be offered since the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin, conscious, uh, conscious of, consciousness of sin. but in these sacrifices there is a remainder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Again, what the heck are we talking about? We're talking about the external actions. The external actions don't make you right on the inside. This is the difference between Christianity and every other world religion. Every world religion is a plan or a scheme or a ladder or actions you do to get right with God, to get to God, to get after God. But the good news of Christianity is that it's first and foremost about good news. We come preaching and proclaiming, He has done it all. Jesus has done everything to make us right. And it's not just on the outside, it's on the inside. He's changed us from the inside out. And I hope what you see here as we're we're digging into Hebrews, if if you've been along with us for any of this, hey, aren't we hitting a bunch of stuff we've actually already talked about a bunch? Yes, we are. He's going to hit a bunch of the stuff that he's already talked about because we're dealing with a, uh, what's most likely a first century, I believe is a, though this is a little debated, I believe this is true, uh, is a first century sermon manuscript. So it's about 50 minutes long to read it all the way through, which, you know, that's about where I preach. Uh, not saying, just saying. Uh, but, but the reality is he's sort of taken us up the mountain and he's about to take us back down the mountain. And he's going to pick up all these ideas he's already hit. He's going to pick them up and then he's going to start saying, okay, so if these things are true, what do you do with the rest of your life? Because this is the question of Christian spirituality. If Jesus has done it all, what the heck do I do with everything else? Right? 
That's one of the questions that, that Hebrews has dealt with a lot. And really, it's looking at Jesus, beholding Jesus, seeing him in his glory and responding to him because when you actually see him for who he is, that response becomes a radical one. That response becomes a crazy one. That response becomes one that your hardcore buddies, when you're 24 years old, say, I, I met Jesus and I'm gonna, I believe the Bible and I'm going to follow him. Uh, they say, you're crazy. What are you talking about? I don't even, I don't even, I remember saying this to guys, I met Jesus and he's wonderful and he's beautiful and they look at me like I wasn't even speaking English. They didn't even have a concept or a framework for what was going on in my life or in my heart. It makes you do crazy things, right? I think I've shared it before, but my mama did not understand anything about planting a church. It made no sense to her whatsoever. Why would you and a bunch of people want to start a church in a city that's silly? Don't you have a job where they pay you a salary and do health insurance for you? In a boys and girls club. Yes, mom, that's what we're doing. Because not outside, it's inside out. But these sacrifices, but in these sacrifices, there is a remainder of sins every year. So they go and they deal with every sin. Okay, so I, I sin against God. I go, I bring the animal, I deal with it. Turns out I leave. I sin again. I have to come back. I have to come back. I have to come back year in and year out, day in and day out. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, now this is an interesting thing that Jesus is doing here. This is, this is, so he's saying this is what Jesus has said. So he's quoting Jesus. Remember, we're dealing with first century people who can say things like that. Um, uh, this is Psalm 40, 6, through, 6 and 8, 6, 7, and 8, but Jesus remixes it. Uh, when I remix things, I say, well, you know, it says in that one verse, and then I botch it, and I kind of come back and fix it. When Jesus remixes, he says, hey, see that other thing? This is what it's really about, and it's about me. So here we go, and here's him remixing Psalm 40. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, a people, a people, a body. He's the head, we're the body. What kind of people? Uh, I'm sorry, I don't have slides. I'll put up on the city and elsewhere what, I, what my references are today, but I'm in 1 Peter right now. What kind of a body? What has he done? What kind of a body has been prepared? Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 says this in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So it's no longer about this physical temple, it's about a people. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is huge. I, do you, I mean, that, I can go my whole, I can go months without even thinking about that. But that's cataclysmic. That this thing, this people you are looking at are a royal priesthood in a temple that God has built by the blood of his son and called together. And it's not a building, it's a people. And the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us and is with us now. And we are his and he is ours and it's wonderful. And we can just sleep on it. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. Um, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus is offensive. 
The truth that we need him is offensive when we live in self-reliance and self-salvation. They stumble because they disobey the word. They don't believe the truth about who he is and what he said, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race. Listen. Listen. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not, been, you had not received mercy, but you have now received mercy. And the sacrifices are different. Romans chapter 12 tells us be a, that our lives would be a living sacrifice, right? That our whole life is about responding, about looking at Jesus, looking at his cross, looking at his resurrection, looking at his kingdom, looking at his life, looking at his mercy, looking at his glory, looking at his love, looking at his perfection, and enjoying him with everything we've got, and letting the reality of God who has loved us first soak down into every single nook and cranny and crevice in our entire lives. And enjoy him. And enjoy him. Because when you see him in that, this is about joy. That's, that's, the, that's the response. That's the living sacrifice we call to, we're called to now. And that's the body that he's prepared. Uh, in burnt offerings, back in Hebrews, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now he's going to unpack that for us. I like it when he unpacks it for us. Then I feel really comfortable with it. Uh, verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are according to the law. Now that Jesus has come for people who are in Christ to go and offer some kind of sacrifice for their sins is not something God is pleased in. Now, this is one of those moments where we look at Hebrews and we say, yeah, but I don't have a temple where I go and do that kind of thing. I mean, what does that mean for me? How often do we try and pay God back when we do wrong? How often do we think that if I just feel sorry for myself or feel sorry or sort of send myself to my room to think about what I've done or whatever it might be, do we do because we don't believe that he said that it's finished? We, we look at the cross and we say, yes, the cross is nice and it's good, but I'm sure it can't deal with what I've done. And so I need to do what I can to pay him back. He's not delighted in that. You know what he's delighted in? When you stand there in all of your junk and all of your mess and you hold tight to the promise that it's finished and that you're his and he's yours. That's what delights him, is when you trust in him. When you say, yeah, I've messed up big time. That is jacked up. That was horrible. That was miserable. And I stand under the cross in the mercy of God, forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. That glorifies God when you trust him that way. When you turn from your sin and you turn to him, you say, I trust him. I trust life. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He's not interested in religious externals. He's interested in us trusting him and listening to him. Uh, First and second Chronicles. One of the great themes in this book that's written is they didn't listen to God and they didn't do what he said. So much of First and Second Chronicles is the story of people hearing what God says and not listening to it. And it's a reminder that 
hey, God, God's told us how to live. He's told us what to do. Abide in me and I in you, right? He's shown us how to live in the person of Jesus Christ, and we've got to trust him. He's not, he's not hiding it, by the way. He's not hiding what he wants for your life. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So the old thing's gone, the new thing's here, the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And by that will we have been by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He's really drilling down on this. You are a forgiven people if you're in Christ. There's nothing you did. He did it all. And he did it once. Which means if you leave here this week and you sin, what does he say in 1 John? I write to you, dear children, that you would not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. That's what he said. It's finished. You can't pay him back. You can't do things so he'll think you're awesome. He thinks you're awesome because when he looks at you, he looks at the work of his son. That's why he thinks you're awesome. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is referencing Psalm 110. The book of the Psalms are the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. Psalm 110 is the most quoted of all the Psalms. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament scripture in all of the New Testament. And he's referencing it. And what does it mean when you sit down? It's a Hebrew way of saying, it's finished. It's a Hebrew way of saying, it's done. They had these gates in these old cities that kind of look like teeth when they're drawn on a whiteboard, so they don't make any sense. But apparently dudes used to sit in the teeth, and when you had something to say to the other dudes, not teeth, you know, like bricks that go, they go, see, I can't do it because I don't have a whiteboard. So imagine my, no, we can't do it. We can't do it. We're just going to leave it. They'd sit there, and when they had something to say, they'd stand up and they'd say it, and when they were done, they'd be like, yeah, you owe me that goat. And then, boom, they'd sit down. I don't know what they talked about in the gates, but let's say it was a goat. They stand up, they say what they have to say, and when they're done, they sit down, and that's their way of saying, and I'm done here. I'm finished. It's over. I've said everything I have to say. It's a Hebrew way of saying, it's over. Jesus did it all. The kingdom has come, and the kingdom is coming, and everything that needs to happen for God to put a people in the world back the way it's supposed to to be has happened in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's profound. But I don't need to tell you that. Verse 13. Only in verse 13. We'll get there. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be a, made a footstool for his feet. Again, that's a Psalm 110, rest, uh, that's a Psalm 110 reference. For by a single offering, he has perfected. For all time, those who are being sanctified. He said this before in this book. He's coming down the mountain. But he's reminding us of who we are in Jesus. He's reminding us of being stuff. The reason at the end of time that you will be made perfect is not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done and you've trusted on his name. 
And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, uh, again, this is, this is uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, which he's also quoted, coming down the mountain. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He's going to change us from the inside out. Inside out. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Well, how can he do that? It's because of Jesus. Jesus enters into history. He enters into a real dirty, dusty place into the grime of normal life. I think sometimes we can forget because it feels like some magical land, right? First century Palestine, that's some distant, far, magical land. It was a real place. He was a real man. He ate real food and wore real shoes and real tunics or whatever they wore in that time and place. That part isn't what's important. It's that you realize that he was actually there, that he actually walked on this ground. He actually lived a perfect, sinless life, actually following Jesus, and God, or actually following God in all things that he did. And he died on the cross, bleeding out for us. He dies on the cross. And he drinks the cup of wrath that I deserve. He takes everything I deserve for my whole life, lived against him, for everything I've done and taken credit for that I thought I was awesome for doing, that I, for every time that I've taken something that's not God and treated it like it was God, that's idolatry. Every time I took something he made and made that the purpose and point and focus of my life, all of that, all my good works, all my bad works, all the works I didn't do, all the things I didn't do, all the ways I, I've organized my life against him and against his glory and in every way that I looked at God in his right place in the center of the universe and tried to push him out of the way and stand in, the, stand in that spot. And he takes all of that on himself. This is called penal substitutionary atonement theologically. He was punished in my place as my substitute to make me one and right with the God of the universe. This is what we have in the gospel. You are right with God right now. Even as you're working out your junk, even as you're working it out, you're working it out under the covering of being right with God. You're not working it out so he'll like you. You're not getting cleaned up so he'll accept you. You're working it out under the banner of accepted, chosen child of God. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Why? He did it all. Twenty-one minutes, twenty-nine seconds, and I'll ask the question: What's the therefore? Therefore, this is the why of our life in Christ. We're working this whole thing out under the banner of God's children. We're working this whole thing out under the victory of Christ. Working out this whole thing to know him and love him because he has known us and loved us first. Verse 19. Seven ways that I think we're to respond to this truth as laid out in Hebrews. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, not goats, 
by the new and living way that he has through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The curtain, he's referencing this again. The curtain is the thing that divided the tabernacle where the manifest presence of God and a pillar of smoke sat over the Ten Commandments in the tabernacle over the Ark of the Covenant. It was sealed off and once a year one guy gets to go in and offer sins for the unintentional sins and the sins of the people. One guy gets to go one time a year into the presence of God, period. That curtain, as Jesus died on the cross, is torn. And where is it torn? Always remember, it's not from the bottom up, it's from the top down. From heaven down, God tore the curtain and gives us full access to enter in and draw near to God. So what do we do as Christians? Number one thing we do as blood-bought sinner saints is we draw near to God. Number one, we draw near to God. But why? What is the because? Because we've been sprinkled clean. We've been made new. We've been washed white. So as holy, forgiven, loved children, we walk into our Father's arms. That's why. That is the because of it. We draw near to God because He's drawn near to us. We stand holy before God because He's made us holy. We stand forgiven by God because He's forgiven us. We stand cleansed before God because He's cleansed us. That's why. That's why we can enter in and know him and love him. That's why you get up at 6 in the morning to read your Bible for an hour or 15 minutes or just a verse. If you just listen to one verse a day, please, anything. It's his voice. Draw near to him. Uh, It's what Richard Lovelace, he uses this great metaphor uh, in, in talking about spiritual disciplines, things like prayer and reading your Bible. That we don't do those things again so God will love us, but that we do those things because when we draw near to him in those ways, we get filled up, our minds get filled up with the ideas of God and and in communion with God. And we're like solar cells that are absorbing the sun into our life to power our day as we go out to live in response to Jesus and his gospel. I need the Bible because on my own, I'm lost. That's why I get up and I read it. Because without it, I'm lost. That's why I love good preaching. Because I'm lost without someone explaining and reminding me and telling me the truth of who Jesus is. And that's why I like reading books. You don't have to read books. You don't have to listen to sermons. I'm just saying do whatever. If it's nothing else, please just read one verse a day. Please enter it in prayer and and seek him out. Seek his face. Draw near to him. Because James has given us the promise. This is a huge, huge promise. And I think I could say this every week because I need to hear it honestly every day. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. That's huge. Draw near to God. Let's keep going. Uh, Number two, hold fast the confession. Let us, in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For we, for he who promised is faithful. Do you see there's a why in there? Why do I have confidence in Jesus? Because I got a reason for it. That's why. Why do I hold on to the, to the confidence that I have in Jesus? Because his promises are faithful and true. His word is faithful and true. Why do I hold this book to be the truth of God, the very voice of God? Because his promises are true. He is faithful. He will never leave us nor forsake us. The 66 books of the Bible, I hold fast to this thing like nothing else because these, this is the gift that God has given us, his very voice, his very words, and everything he wanted to reveal to human beings, he did so in his son. And this is the account of God's self-disclosure to human beings. It's not just a religious exercise. It is God's self-disclosure to us. 
And frankly, we live in a time and a place where people would like you just to kind of parse out the parts they don't like. Well, cut out that, surgically remove that, ignore that. Um, I had a buddy who I was working with, uh, and we were getting getting into it, and we were talking, and I was in the midst of memorizing uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, which I realized this morning I no longer have memorized, and I'm going to commit to memory, um, because if you get lazy with this stuff, it goes away. Uh, but, but it says this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. You have friends who think you're crazy for believing in Jesus. I have friends who think I'm crazy for believing in Jesus. My friend who I was talking about today thinks I'm crazy for believing Jesus. I am a nut job for believing Jesus. And, and lovingly, kindly, not arguing, not fighting, but telling him the truth about who Jesus is, all he wanted me to do was to waver. So without wavering in Hebrews. All he wanted me to do was say, okay, I've got Jesus and that's fine for me and you've got your thing and that's fine for you. That's all he wanted me to say so that he could forget about Jesus and move on. And I'd been memorizing this verse and the Holy Spirit brought it to mind. I said, brother, I love you. Uh, he's not a Christian brother, but he's a dear friend. And I let him know, hey, this thing is crazy to you. This thing is crazy to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, this is the power of God. That's not what he wanted to hear. He looks at me and says, perishing? Yeah, perishing. But even looking at this verse, so this means that I think I'm sane, and this means that he thinks I'm crazy. So if I'm the crazy person who looks at my friend and I see that his house is burning down, and I don't tell him, your house is burning down and you're inside of it, there's a way out, there's salvation, there's life. And coming to him and saying, because my house was burning down. And you know what happened when my house was burning down? I had someone, Jesus Christ, come and save me from myself. The whole while that my house was burning down around me, I'm kicking and screaming and fighting and doing everything I can. And he's dragging me out of the stupid house. And he saved me from myself. He dragged me out. I was trying to handcuff myself to the, the pipes or something. You know what I mean? I was trying to do everything I can, anything but this. And he saved me. And the reality is my buddy thinks that I'm crazy for thinking that his house is burning down. But at least I'm a crazy person who's willing to tell him, hey, brother, I think your house is burning down. Right? I'm not going to wait three years to build a relationship with someone to reveal to them that I'm a Christian so I can let them know that their house is burning down. There's a world full of people who are dying, who are perishing, and you have the truth. And we're going to hold fast because he's faithful. And yeah, they're going to, your neighbor is going to think you're crazy. My neighbor thinks I'm, he's willing to talk to me. He's awesome and I love him, but he thinks I'm crazy. And, and your cubicle mate is going to think you're crazy. And, and, and the kids at school are going to think you're crazy. And everyone's going to think you're crazy. And guess what? That's because the, the cross is folly to them. But it is the power of God. And so we hold fast to that power. Back in Hebrews. Number three, stir each other up for good works. Number three, let us hold fast. No, we did that one. 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 
Man, it sure is helpful to have people around to help stir you up for love and good works. We don't do love and good works because he, uh, so he will love us again. We do love and good works. That was dramatic. No problemo. We do love and good works because he's done love and good works to us. And there's something about being around people who are doing love and good works that gets Christians excited to do love and good works. There's something about seeing people love people who they don't have to love and do things, be kind to people uh, because God's been kind to them that makes me want to love people that I don't need to love and be kind to people. And that's part of the reason why we have the church body, right? When you see people loving people, you're like, man, I want to love people because you're a Christian and God's working in you. It's because he's loved you. It's because he's been kind to you. Uh, Again, we don't do these things so he'll love us. We do them because he loved us. Uh, And let us consider... Uh, No, I keep going back. Maybe my numbers are off. Four. Um, Not neglecting. 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, there's two things that are going on with the day drawing near and the meeting together. So it's either that the day is drawing near, uh, and if you're kind of like... you know, if you read Left Behind, you're free in Christ to read the, or Thief in the Night, or whatever they wrote before Thief in the Night, or whatever they did, right? Um, but you see these things, and sometimes you can take this mentality, oh, we've got to huddle up because the world's going to come to an end, and we've got to bunker down. I think you actually missed the point of, of the first century understanding of his return. His return is that Jesus Christ is coming to wipe every tear from our eyes and to put his creation back the way it's supposed to be. So this is not being a, a bummer thing. This is us coming together to celebrate. You know he's coming back and every day he's coming back sooner and when he comes back, he is going to put everything back the way it's supposed to be and that gives us reason to sing. Sing. To tell. To carry the message. To spread the good news. Not being the gloom, I don't know how to be the gloomy guy with the sign, but it's not supposed to be gloom and doom. Yes, it's coming. Judgment is coming. Yes, he will vindicate the righteous. Yes, he will deal with bloodshed. And yes, he's coming to put the world back the way it was supposed to be. Don't forget it. Don't forget that he made it good, and it's going to be good again. Now, this meeting together piece. And also when you use the, like, the gloom and doom, then you can say, so you better be there on Sunday because he's coming back. That's my gloom and doom voice. It's my mechanistic make you show up voice, right? And, and what's interesting about this piece is that the, the people who are like, really into Sunday are going to say, oh, he's talking about you, you should have a gold star for Sunday attendance. And the people who are really into like, Bible studies are like, no, 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 it's talking about Bible study. And the people who are really into like, community groups or missional communities or whatever you want to call those things, uh, whatever they're called this week in the church world, um, Small groups is what they used to be called. But when you're into those things, you say, oh, that's, that must mean what he's talking about here, this neglecting the meeting together. I think you actually missed the point. We meet together whenever we can because we're Christians and we get to come together and celebrate Jesus and remember who he is. So we want to come together in this kind of setting and celebrate. And we want to come together in community because we get to eat and we get to pray for each other and it's awesome. And we want to do Bible study because then you get to hear from other people what they're seeing and how the Spirit's speaking to them through the text and it's awesome. And all these things are awesome. But not only that, I think it goes further than that. It goes from the reality that community group is awesome. I can say awesome one more time. It is neat. It is cool. It is great. I love it. I love my community group, right? 
But you know when that thing gets real? Is when someone from my community group's at my house and we're getting real with Jesus and it's not just, oh, we talk about Jesus stuff at Jesus time, but now you're at my house and so now it's time to talk about whatever the news or whatever. Or, 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 or when, when guys are serving together. Yeah, it's awesome to serve together, but you know one of the raddest things about serving the church, like coming out to set out chairs? One, you're sending out chairs so people can hear the gospel. You're not setting out chairs to set out chairs. But the other thing is there's something cool that happens when you're sitting next to another person and you're just painting a wall together or whatever that, that God just uses those moments to allow us to be real and do life on life. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, man, I got up at six in the morning joyfully for Bible study. I was tired. And Lenny's gonna lead one. It's gonna be awesome. He's gonna do James, 6 a.m. at Zoka. It's not a plug. I'm just telling you it's gonna be cool. It's gonna be awesome, right? I'll plug it. I don't care. It's gonna be great. <laughs> and community group's great, but it's not just so I can get you to Bible study or make sure you show up on Sunday or get you in a community group. It's because there's life there. And this life spills out into everything else. It's, it's catalytical for doing our whole life in Jesus with the whole church all the time. I hope, I hope you see that. It's not just, let's find the thing to make sure that you're doing something. You meet together because, man, sometimes you just need someone to say that, man, Jesus loves you. <laughs> sometimes you just need someone to say, you know, I, I see what you're saying. But you know, he's sovereign king over everything and he's got this thing. And guess what? If you're doing that on your own, if you're the Lone Ranger Christian and you're just not with other Christians, there's no one there to tell you the truth. He's built the church for a reason. That's part of it. There's a lot of other reasons, too, and the church is neat and fun and awesome, but... Anyways, moving on. Next. Oh, man. We're going to do it. 39 verses. 39 verses. We'll do it. Uh, Okay. Verse 5. Don't sin. Okay, what does that mean? Verse 5, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What the heck does that mean? This is one of those verses, and this is why you need people around. I think it's interesting that the meet together verse is followed by a verse that if you read it wrong, you're going to feel really guilty and horrible and, and try and do whatever you can to pay God back, just like he said not to do, right? What is he talking about here? If we go on sinning deliberately, If you look at that man on that cross, dying in your place for your sins, and you heard me say that a few minutes ago as I unpacked that idea, and you began to text your friends and say, is anyone up for a Sunday afternoon kegger? Because Jesus paid the price for all my sins, and I'm in the mood for some keg stands. Guess what? You didn't hear the gospel. Um, John, in John's gospel, Jesus, here, Romans, 1 Peter, are all going to say, if that is your response to Jesus, my fear is that you're not a Christian. My fear is that if you hear that he's paid the price for all your sins, you're like, cool, I'm going to go poke him in the eye then. That's great. I can do whatever I want to do. See you later. You missed the whole point. Because if you're a Christian and you hear the love that God has for you, it makes you want to respond to him, to worship him, to know him, to turn from sin and to turn to God. That's what he means here. So, But what he doesn't mean here is ordinary, normal. And I want to be careful here. This isn't a license to sin either. But guess what? I sin. And so do you. I write to you little children so that you would not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Right? Yeah, so when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, which is good news. So he's not talking about normal sin. 
taking credit for something you did, letting your right hand let know what your left hand was doing, speeding, whatever. He's talking about just saying, okay, Jesus paid the price for my sin, so I'm going to go sin. Jesus paid it all, so I'm going to go do some more. That's what he's talking about here. And he goes on. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Oh. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire will come to consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So someone who's actively rebelling against the old covenant law would be dealt with in a judicious manner and they would be dealt with in this. So he says, okay, if that's what you get for disobeying the law, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? To be a Christian, to look at Jesus and say, you've paid it all, you've done it all, never mind, I'll take care of it myself. To look at at the cup he drank on your behalf and say, cool, I got it, I'll drink that one. If the law was about external stuff and you're spurning the God who paid the internal stuff, how much worse is it going to be? It's for real. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. God is perfectly just and his wrath is the business end of that justice and God will deal with all the injustices that every human being has perpetrated against every other human being and every injustice has been perpetrated against him and all the while we understand that Jesus stands there saying, come in here, there's room. Take refuge here. I'll drink the cup. Come on. Come on. So God isn't just doing it. There's a way out. And he's saying, and if you've taken the way out, you say, nah, I'm going to see what it's like outside the ark. Uh, Let's go out and see how it goes. I'm going back out into the storm. I don't need the refuge. I'm going out, and we miss the mercy and the grace. This is a side note. It's not one of the sort of um, imperative type things that are listed here. But I mean, how serious is this that we remember our city We're not just here because it's a city and it's cool. God has not just put you here so you could go to shows at the tractor. Go to shows at the tractor. It is awesome. But you're here for his glory. You're here to spread the news of his son. You're here to display his graciousness. And we have a city that is perishing. It's perishing. I'm not saying be a jerk. I'm saying love your neighbor. Because here's the deal about God. God saved you for his glory. He saved you so that he could show the universe how awesome he is. He saves guys like me and like you, you know, just a dirt dog. Saved a dirt dog so that everyone say, that guy became a Christian? How is that? I mean, Christians said that to me. You? from comparative religions class in high school, became a Christian? How? God's glory. 
God's sovereign hand in all things. And God glorifies himself by showing mercy and kindness and love and grace to us who don't deserve it at all. Who makes people who are unholy, holy. Who makes people unlovable, loved. He does all these things for his glory and his blood-bought sinner saints by the sovereign glory of Jesus Christ. The way that sinners then glorify God is by glorifying him. By pointing to him. By saying, that God is awesome. I enjoy Jesus more than all other things in the world. That is the point of my life is Jesus. And the way that we glorify God, which is, kind of feels like an old-timey word now, but it really means to point to his beauty, to point to God and his glory and say, God is it. God's the one. The way that sinners glorify God is by enjoying him. By enjoying him, by looking at him and loving him and knowing him. And two of the greatest ways, and probably not the only ways we do this, one is by craving him and one is by carrying the message of him. That you crave to be in his presence. I was convicted of this as I was looking at this this week. I realized that if I go without breakfast, I'm cranky and I blame everybody else. But if I happen to miss my morning Bible reading, I'm cool. I can go on with my day. And I realized that should be opposite. That should be reversed. I want to value God's word more than I value breakfast. I want to value time with him in his face more than any other thing. And I tell you what, in turning to that, my my time in the word has been very sweet this week. And God has been very gracious to draw near to me. Because I actually wanted him more than anything else. And he's the one we want. He's the one we crave. And we also carry the message of Jesus. We carry the truth that he saves sinners. That he is on the move. We invite people into what God is doing in our own community. We carry the message. Uh, I hate using this one because it's got my name in it. But it is very helpful to remember. Philip evangelism, Andrew evangelism. Andrew evangelism isn't where you bring people in so they can hear Andrew talk. But Andrew evangelism where the, the disciple Andrew went and said, Hey, you've got to come see Jesus. So he said, hey, you got to come in and hear some preaching. you got to come in and hear people sing about Jesus. you got to come see what Jesus is doing within his people. And Philip evangelism is where you go to your cubicle mate and say, this might sound crazy, but I believe a first century Palestinian uh, preacher was God incarnate who died on a cross, bled and died to save me from myself, and rose from the dead three days later, sitting, ruling and reigning at the throne of God on high, and you can be his too. Turn from your sins. Don't put it that way, but you know what I mean? You carry the message. You go and you tell people. Say it with some passion, right? You don't just read them a catechism like passion. Rejoice over this thing. Because here's the thing. So God glorifies himself by saving us and we glorify him by enjoying him and the love we have spilling over as it gets down into every facet of our life because the way we crave and enjoy him is we appreciate every little thing he does we are moving to a space that when you get released on Sunday, the, the teardown is less, and there's just red mill burgers and El Chupacabra, and there's just food. And it's not just for food's sake, it's that you say, oh man, Jesus, you thought of tacos. <laughs> Praise your holy name. And I've been blessed to be a blessing, so I'm going to tip 25%. If you're Anchor Church and you're leaving, don't not tip. In fact, tip well. Because he's loved you, right? And you carry the message and you tell whoever you 
can. So God glorifies us by saving us. And so then we, all of a sudden we realize everything he made is to point right on back up to his glory and is to draw near to him and to know him and love him and serve him and carry the message to the city. And what does Jesus do with that carried message? The sovereign God of glory draws people to himself through his son as you carry the message of his son to this city and he saves sinners. And so he starts it all over again by saving them for his glory. See how it cycles back around? Glorifies himself, saves you, you glorify him. You glorify him by carrying the message. He glorifies himself by taking the message you carry about his son to save other people and make them his own. And then he uses those people then for his glory. And all this is meant to point and say, Jesus, you are so beautiful and wonderful and amazing. That was a side point, by the way. Number six, endure. Uh... Verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after they became Christians, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Uh, The first 300 years of the church, there are six major persecutions. There are a number of local persecutions. Um, Sometimes we get the impression that until 312 when Christianity is legalized in the Roman Empire, that it's just constant persecution. Um, There were probably a lot of times when people didn't really want to deal with it, to be frank. But there were six major persecutions, a lot of local persecutions, and these people at least tasted one of the persecutions, and it sounds like that persecution may have kind of tapered back a little bit. But saying, hey, remember when that totally sucked? But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Because here's how it works in a Roman prison. You get thrown in the can, they don't feed you. Who feeds you? Your friends feed you. They have to bring you food. So if you get thrown in the can for being a Christian, if someone comes to bring you food, there's a possibility that people look at them and say, oh, maybe that guy's a Christian too. Maybe we should throw him in the can too. So if your friends are going to eat, you have to expose yourself to the possibility of persecution. For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I'm not saying that I think he's saying that the, that the Roman soldiers roll up in their, their U-Haul chariot and you help them load your stuff into it. But when they take your stuff because you love Jesus, you say, I love Jesus more than stuff. Jesus is of more value than my couch and my very large TV. If it's the stuff or Jesus, I go with Jesus. Take my stuff. Take it. Uh, Jesus says stuff like this, believe it or not, in uh, Matthew chapter 5. At the end of the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he turns around and makes it about us. Blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and all, utter all kinds of evil against you, imperative word here, falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I belong to Jesus, which means, here's the reality. It doesn't say all who desire to live a godly life may be persecuted. It says all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. It means people aren't going to like it, but they don't like it because God's made life in you, because God's at work in you, and that's the cost sometimes. And I'm not saying they're not, 
I mean, there's, there's people who are just curious, looking in, what the heck do you, you believe what? People are interested. People are going to hate it. Or people are going to hate it. But what do we do with that? We get back to the why. Because if Jesus is sweeter and Jesus is greater and Jesus is mightier and Jesus is more wonderful, nothing else I have matters. If you see how good and wonderful and glory he is, do you see what this does in our hearts? If God's calling you to go to a foreign country where nobody loves Jesus, do you think that's going to cost you something? It's going to cost you a lot. If you want to run the long haul in Seattle, I mean, you just got to, your rent's going to be more here, right? If you're going to run the long haul in Seattle, do you think it's going to cost you something to be light in the darkness in the city? It is going to cost something. But whatever that cost is, when you put it on the scale of getting everything in Jesus, it flips. And the why of this does something in our hearts and gets down into the core of our being. Uh, Last one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, namely Jesus, face to face forever. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. He's not slow, but my righteous one shall live by faith. He's going to take some trust in Jesus in all this. You want to move to the least reached people on the planet? You think you're going to have to have some faith that God's going to do something? You want to stay here and pay high rent? You want to stay here and deal with cubicle mates who all think you're a moron? You think it's going to cost you something? Not compared to what Jesus has. Trust him. Believe him. He does, he does crazy stuff. He saves people like us. Everybody else would have said, no way, Jose. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and he, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not. I'm so thankful for the author of Hebrews. He kind of comes down on the hard stuff, and then he, then he lifts it back up. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. We have to endure. Let's pray. Jesus, we just pray for that ambulance right now. Just pray you'd help them get where they are going. And we long for the day that you're going to restore all things. Amen. That was not the closing prayer, by the way. It, just, it seems silly to talk about how wonderful Jesus is and how he's going to restore everything. And an ambulance drives by and you don't stop and ask that the sovereign God of the universe would do something there. Um, but now we'll finish up and then I'll pray. Um, so we endure. We keep going. And I hope in all this we see uh, the, rea- the radical why of all this creates a radical what in our lives. If this is who Jesus is and this is how he loved us and this is how he's been gracious to us, this should produce in us a radical love for our neighbors, a la- radical love for our families, a radical love for the church, a radical love for our friends, a radical response to his gospel, be willing to lay it all out for him because we have a greater reward. His name is Jesus and we get him and all this is dust in the wind. 
We get to enjoy this. He's given us life. This isn't to feel bad about. This is to feel okay about, to feel good about. But knowing that this thing, all the cool stuff we're doing in Jesus right now, is just a foretaste of the thing that's coming. Which means we can lay it all out online. Your money, your house, everything. Whatever you've got, you're not going to have it 10,000 years from now. It's passing. But what you will have is Jesus. And so we put everything in following him. That what is radical? Jesus Christ saves sinners from death to life. The why is radical. Switched them. The why is radical that Jesus Christ saves sinners from death to life. And so the what is what? A life lived joyfully in response to the power of that truth for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Uh, King Jesus, we thank you for today. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you that we are clean We're a clean people. We're a forgiven people. We're a forgiven people. We're a living people. We're a gracious people because you've been gracious to us. Lord, help us to just love you and crave you. Put Put a craving in our hearts to know you and rejoice in you. Give us broken hearts for every person we meet who rejects your word. Let us pray our guts out for them. Help us to love them, be kind to them, be gracious to them. Be gracious to them even when they're doing hard things towards us. Help us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Help us to love this city. Help us to love people. Help us to point them to the truth and help us to live in the life you have given us. Jesus, we love you. Pray you bless this Boys and Girls Club. Pray you bless our efforts in Finney, God, and that we do it under the banner of a bunch of blood-bought sinner saints living because you died. Jesus, we love you and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen.